Here's a brain teaser. What do the iPad, the hamburger, and a cure for Ebola all have in common? I bet you didn't know they were all invented in North Korea. But they do call a hamburger a double bread with meat. And I'll have a wimpy cheese double bread with meat doesn't quite roll off the tongue. So one feels that's less of a win over American capitalism. You're listening to The Commute, and I'm Jessica Van Onselen. According to North Korea's official biography, their previous leader, Kim Jong-il, was speaking in full sentences when he was an eight-week-old baby, wrote 1,500 books just while he was at university, and scored 11 holes-in-one during a golf game. Take that, all you drunken, lazy students, 1,500 books all while you were playing Candy Crush in between tutorials. My personal favorite fact about North Korea was the government announcement in 2015 that they had discovered a lair, which as historians say contains the remains of a unicorn or a dragon, depending on which translation you believe. Let's be honest, your ears definitely prick up when you hear a news story about North Korea. And that's because if you're South African, it's one of the few countries in the world where their politics are arguably more crazy than ours. And you just cannot get away from the Kim family, who dominate every aspect of North Korean life. Like the Kardashians of the Korean Peninsula, only tubbier and with more of a penchant for murdering their enemies with rocket launchers. But of course, like Jacob Zuma, North Korea is 20% amusing anecdotes and 80% creepy as fuck. Desperate poverty, gulags and torture seem to define North Korea. They have no internet and less than 3% of their roads are paved. Even your hairstyle is regulated. They have a list of state-approved haircuts. From 1994 to 1998, a devastating famine gripped North Korea, brought on by sudden drops in imports and food production and a series of terrible floods. It is estimated that up to 1.5 million people died in just those four years, with stories of citizens being forced to eat their pets, then bark off the trees, and in some desperate cases, rumors of cannibalism. But suddenly, coming out of the famine in the late 90s, North Korea seemed to have come into a bit more money, relatively speaking, of course. For starters, Kim Jong-il, Un's dad, began to build the nuclear program. After he died and his son had taken over House Kim, Un invested heavily in renovating and upgrading the capital, although admittedly the rest of the country still languishes in utter poverty. Gleaming new high-rise buildings were built all across Pyongyang. The North Korean elite suddenly began to carry Prada handbags, Cars even started to appear in the empty streets of the city. Where did all this newfound income, albeit modest, come from? Well, the answer might be a little more close to home than you think, fellow South Africans. Late last year, September 2017, the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime published an unputdownable report called Diplomats and Deceit, North Korea's Criminal Activities in Africa. I've put a link to it in the show notes so you can read it too. What becomes clear very quickly from this report is that North Korea is running a state-sponsored criminal network which spans Europe, America, Asia, and all the oceans in between. But this particular report lays out North Korea's illicit activities in Africa. Much of this crime is conducted with the support and in some cases direct involvement of the diplomats representing North Korea and African embassies. And what an amazing list of illicit activities it is. Smuggling of gold, ivory, cigarettes, fake dollar bills, methamphetamine and prescription drugs, and rhino horn. Oh yes, you heard me. And rhino horn. And at the heart of much of it is the North Korean embassy in Pretoria. So it turns out this report on North Korea's dodgy dealings in Africa was written by none other than Julian Rademeyer, one of our own. Julian is an award-winning South African investigative journalist. He's written for pretty much every serious publication out there. 
He was founding editor of the political fact-checking website Africa Check and a senior research fellow working on wildlife crime and other issues for the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, who are responsible for the report we discuss in today's show. A few years ago, Julian published the book Killing for Profit, Exposing the Illegal Rhino Horn Trade. You can read more about the book and about Julian at the website www.killingforprofit.com. But be warned, the photos of animals on that site are not for everyone. Julian is currently a project leader with Traffic, the International Wildlife Trade Monitoring Network. And I got him on the phone from Bangkok, of all places. Julian Rademeyer, welcome to The Commutes. Thanks, pleasure to be with you. Let's start at the beginning. Let's start with the history. Could you give us a bit of an overview of North Korea's history with South Africa? I'm thinking particularly of the ANC before 1994, but but after 1994 would be useful too. Hmm. Well, I mean, North Korea has a has a very long history with many African nations, um, and South Africa is one of those. Um, although our, our direct diplomatic relations are. A, are a fairly recent development um, coming in the wake of the non-aligned movement summit in Durban in 1998. Um, But a lot of this has to do with historic support that North Korea gave to African liberation movements. uh, And that dates back about 50 years. North Korea was was extremely critical of the apartheid government uh, in the 1980s in particular. It would regularly issue statements referring to the, the South African racist clique. Um, and it also provided support to, um, to some of the liberation movements. Uh, that included training, military training in Angola and camps in Angola. Um, so... I, I think much of the links that we have today, although they've they've faded um, with time, and and the uh, the links themselves. I think it was Aziz Pahad who was asked at one point, um, you know, what why South Africa still maintains ties with North Korea, and he struggled a bit to to explain that historical context. Um, and certainly, you know, the um, South Africa's relations with North Korea have cooled in recent years, although they do they do continue. Um, you know, South Africa's response, for instance, to um, the United Nations uh, or motions within the United Nations on human rights have been starkly muted. Um, there was a motion in mm. 2014 that was brought uh, to take diplomatic and legal action against North Korea over a range of atrocities, including mass murder, rape, torture, um, forced labor, uh, etc. And South Africa abstained from that vote. Um, Unbelievable. Although we Unbelievable. have we have consistently opposed their their nuclear ambitions, um, and I think you know I think also you know North Korea South African soldiers participated in the in the Korean War between 1950 and 53, so I think some of the ire of of um, North Korea in in the last couple of decades may also stem from that, um, but we we have almost no trade links really. I think there were estimates published by the Institute for Security Studies that. Um, uh, in 20, uh, 2015 or 16, that um, you know our, our total trade was worth about 2.1 million dollars, so it's fairly insignificant. And then, yeah. um, I mean, interestingly, you know, South Africa also, um, for some odd reason, sent a number of or uh, sent wildlife across to the Pyongyang Zoo in about 2014, including two white rhinos and lions, a tiger, some caracal. 
So it's it's a bit of a patchy relation relationship. I think there's stronger ties with other African nations. Okay, so you mentioned those two ill-fated rhino that went over to Pyongyang Zoo, and we will return to the rhino question in a minute. Mm. Um, I, I read in your, your wonderful report, um, the last time there was a high-profile delegation, or the last time you mentioned your report, was when a North Korean delegation came over in July 2016, and they met with Jesse Duarte, who I think at that stage was still the deputy secretary general of the NC. Mm. And then re- reported, well, there were reports in, in uh, the Korean Central News Agency that apparently Jesse Duarte said, whatever the situation, the ANC will always remember the Korean people who proactively supported the struggle of the people of South Africa mm-hmm. and fully support the Workers' Party of Korea in its struggle for defending the sovereignty of the country. Mm-hmm. We will positively learn from the experience of the WPK, which achieved the single-minded unity that is stronger than nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. I mean, did Jesse Duarte actually say that? Or did the North Korean media make it up? Well, that's that's the question. Um, I, I can't recall whether Jesse Duarte disputed that, but certainly, um, you know, official state media in uh, North Korea are not um, afraid of putting words in people's mouths, and they have there have been some rebuttals to to claims like that. Fake news, yeah, yeah, no, possibly. Yeah. No, exactly. I mean, I think you know, you you're dealing with with news agencies within North Korea, which are proper propaganda arms of the state, and and ultimately their role is to try and further, um, you know, further the the North Korean state. Um, you know, these are the the same news organisations that, if um, for instance, a um, an organization within South Africa that supports North Korea puts a picture of Kim Jong-un on its website or publishes uh, um, some of some of his writings, they'll issue a press statement. Uh, you know, that's breaking news. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, that constitutes breaking news in North Korea. That's in statues, it seems. Hmm. Um, okay, but let's fast forward to today. So um, as we are recording this podcast, there's a great deal of activity going on between North Korea and South Korea. I won't comment on it too specifically because these events seem to be moving a little too quickly for that. Hmm. But we know that the North Korean state's in a pretty dire financial situation. I mean, no real international trade, as you were saying. Uh, its commercial prospects are kind of terrible. And the UN has just imposed round after round after round of sanctions. Um, we know that Kim Jong-un has, has agreed to sort of put his nuclear uh, program on hold, at least temporarily, while these discussions are underway. But tell us a little bit about the current state of the finances of the North Korean mm-hmm. states. Well, that's, you know, that's another big question, because the, the North Korean state doesn't publish economic data. What we do have our estimates from South Korean authorities, and then a lot of the information is uh, information gleaned from defectors. Um, and you know it's very difficult in in cases. I mean, I've interviewed some some North Korean defectors myself. It's very difficult to independently verify that the claims that they make. But what we do know is that the North Korean economy has has struggled for a long period of time, particularly since the the famine that gripped the country in the in the mid 1990s. Um, there's also what has developed over time is is a fairly thriving black market economy, um, and you know the, uh, the the state has has essentially turned a blind eye to those activities. But North Korea has been incredibly heavily reliant on China for trade and for support, and it's its primary trading partner. But China, in, in recent times, has been enforcing sanctions, and that has had its own detrimental effect. Uh, Russia also, which is another trading partner, has implemented some of those those sanctions. 
um, although both countries are set to still be taking North Korean laborers. And that's that's another key source of of income for for North Korea is is the export of its labor, um, primarily construction workers. Um, you know, we found them in the past in Africa, working in Namibia and Mozambique and various other countries, um, and you know, people working in restaurants, North Korean restaurants. Um, so that brings some money in back into the economy. People um, who are required to pay what is what is known as loyalty money to the state if they go overseas and work there. And then tied to that is the illicit economy um, and the the various illegal activities that are fostered as a means of bringing in in hard currency. When we talk about the illicit economy, just a couple of the things that I noted from your reports. I mean, we're talking ivory smuggling, cigarette smuggling, counterfeit US dollars, a, a hacking network, dabbling in prescription, fake prescription drugs. The list is just mind boggling. Mm. I mean, mm. is, this, is this is a full criminal state that really doesn't care about any of its neighbors. Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's the good question. Is North Korea a, a sort of family-run math- mafia state? Um, and again, the estimates vary. I mean, there's some estimates which put the the sort of annual um, amounts that, or, you know, annual profits from export of weapons, trading in drugs, counterfeit money, and other illicit activities at anywhere between 700 million and a billion US dollars. Um, you know, some of the earliest cases on record uh, involved embassies and North Korean diplomats uh, in Scandinavian countries, for instance, um, who were implicated in smuggling cigarettes, counterfeit cigarettes, um, which was another money spinner. Um, but it's, it is an endless list. Um, you know, you've got trade in so-called super notes, um, U.S. dollars that are counterfeit that are meant to be so perfect that they're almost, um, you know, almost impossible to identify. Um, you've got the significant weapons trade, um, the drugs trade, and particularly methamphetamine, uh, which itself has had quite dire impacts on, um, you know, North Korean population in some areas. Um, if you look at some of the, the research that's been done in the past, um, between 1976 and 2003, North Korea was linked to at least 50 verifiable incidents of, of drug trafficking. Um, so it's, it's a very, uh, you know, it's a very involved, uh, very lucrative business for them. So we know that they send or, or laborers work outside of North Korea, and we know that they have embassies in certain but not all countries. Um, and we, of course, are lucky enough to have an embassy in Pretoria. Mm. I googled it before the show, so it's 958 Vartaput Street, for any of our listeners who are interested. And it just looks like a house. It has two white lions outside of it. But I think that that benign-looking gate probably conceals a much more complicated interior. What do we know about the North Korean embassy in Pretoria? Well, there's a volleyball court in front in the driveway. Um, but, uh, you know, for the most part, the, the diplomats there um, remain fairly cloistered. I tried at various stages to speak to them, get comment from them. Uh, you know, in one instance, I, I eventually just turned up um, on their front doorstep with a cameraman, tried to get comments. Their reaction was was quite extreme. Um, you know, there was violent threats. Uh, one of one of the security people eventually sort of kicked up kicked the the gate when he saw me filming them. Um, there were two rather bored Alsatians inside. There was quite inside. a big dog. Yeah, two. Yeah, I saw the dogs. The and, other Alsatians mm. were quite friendly. I think they were confused about what all this aggression was about, and they had a ball that they wanted to play <laughs> with. Um, 
And, you know, then they started pelting my car with stones and little pebbles uh, in a bid to get me to leave. Um, so, you know, it's, I think, and time and time again, they've been approached about various allegations leveled against them. Um, you know, uh, reporters who've, who've looked into this um, and essentially been strung along, um, you know, no hard comments, occasionally a sort of a no comment, but, but no one really prepared to sit down and have a discussion. Um, that embassy, though, is quite integral in uh, North Korean diplomatic activities in southern Africa, um, particularly in, uh, in Zimbabwe, Namibia and Mozambique. Uh, relations with Botswana were effectively severed in 2014. Um, and, you know, relations with some of the other countries are cooling. Um, but it's this embassy that was implicated in an incident in, in May 2015 when uh, one of its diplomats was caught in Mozambique with, with Rhino Horn. Well, not just Rhino Horn, 4.5 kilograms of Rhino Horn and $100,000 in cash, mm. right? And, and the, the Toyota Fortuna that, that they were all in in Mozambique was registered to the actual Praetorian embassy. So that begs the question, is the North Korean embassy in South Africa implicated in rhino poaching and the trade of Rhino Horn? Well, it's definitely in, in, uh, implicated in trafficking rhino horn. Um, and that incident was, um, you know, appears not to have been an isolated incident. Um, that was one of the, the rare cases where, where hard evidence was, was found. Um, in this particular instance, a, uh, a North Korean uh, diplomat, uh, Pak Chol Jun, um, who held quite a senior role in the embassy, and a Taekwondo master who'd been living in South Africa for some time and was reputed at, at one stage to be a North Korean spy, uh, Kim mm-hmm. Jong-soo, were detained in Maputo. Um, as you said, 100,000 US dollars in cash and four and a half kilograms of rhino horn was found in their vehicle. Um, the North Korean ambassador subsequently flew to Maputo and they were released. Um, there, there are some conflicting stories that they either paid a fine or a bribe and they were allowed to go. Um, and returned to South Africa. And then South Africa ultimately intervened. The, the Ministry of International Relations gave uh, the diplomat, um, Pak, uh, 30 days to leave South Africa, or be PNG'd, as the term declared, persona non grata. And the Taekwondo master left South Africa telling acquaintances here that he um, was returning home to visit his family. Um, and as far as we know, he hasn't returned. I know that in, in May 2015, we were quite uh, in the grip of the fees must fall. There was a lot going on in the country, but I don't recall. I mean, I'm quite quite interested in North Korea, and I don't really recall a huge media splash about this. I was just thinking, mm-hmm. what happened if the British ambassador was caught on holiday on the south coast with 4.5 kilos of rhino horn? Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of amazing that this stuff wasn't headlines for days. No, exactly. I mean that that story petered, you know, or emerged quite quite slowly. Um, there was an initial report about a month later, published by United Press International by one of their South Korean correspondents, uh, which which gave some details about the incident. But the South African authorities kept it quiet for for a long period of time. Um, uh, I, I eventually started asking questions uh, in around December of that year. Um, and it was only then that I, I finally, after, after much persuasion, managed to get confirmation from the Ministry of, of, um, of uh, International Relations that the, you know, the incident had been, um, that they had looked into the incident. 
and that the steps that they were taking were to declare, um, you know, this this particular diplomat will give him the the opportunity to leave the country. Um, but that incident is is part of an ongoing incident, particularly in relation to the trade in Rhinehorn and ivory. Um, research that I did at the time for the the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, uh, going through news reports and open source information dating back to 1986, um, identified 31 cases of rhinohorn and ivory smuggling involving diplomats from various countries. But what was quite a surprise is that 18 of those cases involved North Korean diplomats. Um, and you know. We, yeah, I mean, you know, we'd, we'd known North Korean activity in the, in the Rhinohorn and ivory trade was, was quite well documented, particularly by the Environmental Investigation Agency in Zimbabwe in the late 1980s. Um, but again, that was seen almost as an aberration, as something that was going on in Zimbabwe itself. Um, EIA subsequently produced a report in which they said that the uh, Zimbabwean embassy uh, was involved and massively involved in the in the illegal trade in Rhinohorn and Ivory. Um, and Zimbabwe subsequently shuttered those embassies. Zambia did the same thing. Um, so, um, you know, this is something that has been going on for a very long time. And uh, it seems that this activity is, is still going on. Um, the, most, the most recent incidents that I've managed to document occurred in September and October 2016, when two North Korean nationals traveling on diplomatic passports were detained on, on separate occasions at Bole International Airport in Ethiopia. Both of them were en route to China. Um, and, you know, one of them was found with um, just over 70 pieces of worked ivory in his possession. And then the other, who was arrested about a month later, um, was found with around 200 ivory bangles in his possession. Um, and what's interesting, that, that in that particular case, the, the man's name was Kim Chang-soo, and he appeared to be a, a North Korean trade representative in Harare. Um, and just recently, last, last week, the uh, Zimbabwean newspaper Newsday managed to track him down. Uh, he's still active in Zimbabwe. He's still their, their primary um, trade person there. Um, he denied all the allegations and claimed that it was it was fake news, um, although admitted that the name was correct and the title was correct. Um, you know, and that but that incident again shows how reluctant um, uh, you know officials are. The Ethiopian incident show how reluctant officials are to take action when they discover that people are diplomats and that they're involved in smuggling. It shows reluctance. But I think it also shows that there must be huge amounts of money at play to continue this high risk behavior, which leads to the question. So who is getting rich off this illegal mm. trade? I mean, not just the rhino horn, the whole, mm. the drugs, the counterfeit dollars. Who's getting rich and who's not getting rich? Well, I think it's I mean, I think in some ways it's not not entirely that simple. I mean, I think that, you know, overall, there's a reluctance um, from law, law enforcement officials to take action against diplomats. You know, we've seen that in South Africa when Vietnamese diplomats have been implicated in smuggling rhino horn. Um, the generally preferred route is to quietly let them go and, you know, write a formal letter of complaint to the embassy and say, you know, this person should should leave the country. And I think the the customs officer or the policeman or whatever that uh, is going to arrest a diplomat once they know that they are a diplomat and have seen their, their credentials is a rare individual. 
you know, it's, it's these are the people that um, are involved at airports are often fairly low-level officials, um, you know, and they've all got bosses, and the bosses tend to frown on on diplomatic incidents that that could have an impact. Um, but you know, in terms of who's getting rich, I think it's again, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, the you know, diplomats, North Korean diplomats are incredibly poorly paid. Um, Generally, an ambassador would be paid around a thousand US dollars a month. Um, officials within the embassy would be paid significantly less, and the embassies are expected to be um, almost self-sustaining to create their own opportunities to set up businesses. So, the the Pretoria Embassy, for instance, at one stage was involved in a pretty terrible North Korean restaurant um, in the east of Pretoria, <laughs> which they set up. Did you at, eat there? I didn't get. I didn't get the chance. Um, I tried, but they had closed down. This was shortly after oh. this this incident. Um, and luck. one of the, <laughs> exactly, but um, their their restaurant reviews on Facebook and elsewhere were pretty terrible. But I, one one of, and one of the reasons for that is that they were unable to bring in North Korean chefs. Um, the uh, Department of International Relations flatly refused to issue work permits to to the chefs that they wanted to bring in. So they trained. Um, some South Africans to work in the kitchen, and I think there was an Afrikaans guy who ran the restaurant. And, um, you know, they had various specials at various times, but people clearly weren't biting. Um, but they've, you know, it's those sorts of businesses. I think, it, you know, at one stage in uh, in Zambia, they were renting out the, um, the embassy minibus as a taxi to make extra money. And conditions were so dire, this was in the 1980s, that um, when they held an embassy function, the diplomats had to actually leave the embassy and go and catch fish in the river to try and feed their guests because they simply didn't have the money to buy, bring food in. Um, so, you know, and we we constantly hear these these um, stories from some of these embassies and from, from defectors that they live in, you know, close confines. Um, you know, sometimes all they can afford is, is rice or, or, you know, some basic staple. Um, so money is a, is a big issue. So... I, this helps to to pad their incomes. Uh, in some cases, these you know some of the diplomats and also other North Koreans working abroad are trying to save up money to take back to their families in addition to paying uh, loyalty money to the state. Um, and there was one particular individual I interviewed a defector who um, had spent um, some time working as a, as a sort of middleman um, import export type. Uh, for North Korea based in China. And he, um, uh, you know, he spoke about trying not to declare too much income from his business. You know, the business that he was running, the front company he was running, this import-export business was doing pretty well. But he would only declare, you know, X amount of income because he'd be required to pay more and more uh, loyalty money. So it was better for him to under-declare how well the business was doing. Um, and then he could line his own his own pockets. Um so, you know, I think I think for many of those people, it's it's a fairly stark choice. Mm, so it's not actually the sort of lavish ambassadorial lifestyle one sometimes think. I mean, sometimes these people live in absolutely dire conditions. It yeah, like. no, exactly. You know, it's um, I think, you know, some of the depending on the seniority and depending where the diplomats are based, some of them live better, better off than others. But, um, you know, many of the diplomats living in, in African countries are not living in particularly great conditions. 
So you mentioned you have had a chance to speak to a number of North Korean defectors, which must be an amazing experience. Uh, And they seem to just carry with them the most shocking and horrifying stories, which are finally starting to get out. We're starting to to capture those and they'll be reflected in history, I think. Uh, You tell a great slash horrifying story in your report about a, a North Korean, I think it was a biophysicist, and he was responsible for researching the sorts of goods that Kim Jong-il, uh, Kim Jong-un's late dad, the previous one, was eating. Mm. And that eating, quote-unquote, exotic goods was meant to help with this. Um, <laughs> is that code for sex stuff? Well, some of it seems to have um, have been that. Um, you know, he, he worked for a very um, special sort of uh, section which was uh, meant to look after the leader's um, leader's health and the health of his family. Um, and it was a scientific, um, it was the, the Mansumugang Institute, also known as the, the, the Long Life Health Institute. Um, and it was staffed by dozens of scientists. And their, their job was essentially to keep the leader alive for as long as possible and look at, at various types of things. So that um, included... Um, the exotic foods that you mentioned to help boost his sexual performance, um, and apparently, according to some of the more salacious reports and claims that made, these you know these um, included the the reproductive organs of lions from Africa and seals, um, and that's something that um, you know Kim Myung Soo, the the um, biophysicist who escaped, um, you know, and he'd been um, quite badly tortured. Um, his his mother had been um, reportedly tortured to death in a prison camp, um, you know, and, and he fled to South Korea. And these were some of the stories that that he told. Um, you know, he he was also, you know, he said that um, rhinohorn, which wasn't readily available, um, was something that was used by uh, the more affluent uh, members of society, many you know, government, senior government officials, ministers, etc. Because it was believed to cure certain types of cancer, it's it's amazing to hear these stories. Um, so we've sort of touched on perhaps governments' reluctance or hesitance to confront diplomats and and make um, diplomatic relations difficult. But what about Interpol? I mean, what is the international community's appetite for cracking down on this illicit economy and clamping down on on the drugs and the dollars and the cigarettes, etc.? Well, I think I think there's you know certainly appetite from countries like the United States. Um, you know, Interpol itself is is not a police agency. It acts as a as a, an international body for for law enforcement agencies to share information and and so on. So you know, Interpol can't charge in and start arresting people, but it certainly can facilitate that exchange of information. Um, again, I think it especially comes, if it's cross border, right? Yeah, I mean, if yeah. if it is about flowing from South Africa to Ethiopia to China, all facilitated by North Korean um, mules, that that would be an Interpol conversation, I imagine. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think, but again, you know, you have the problem that you have with any transnational organised crime is um, it's about political will of um, Interpol mm. member states. Mm. It's about trying to tackle um, organizations or entities or people who who operate quite easily across borders, who um, whose tentacles span the globe in some cases, um, and who use the fact that they operate across multiple ju- uh, legal jurisdictions to their advantage. Um, and these are also, you know, um, like any good business, these are, I mean, these are businesses. Their job is to get a product from A to B. 
Um, and, you know, like, like anything like that, they are very adept at um, circumventing um, regulations or um, rising to challenges. You know, if one smuggling method is, is um, discovered, um, a new one will emerge and emerge pretty quickly. You know, it's a phone call away to change your methods, to change your routes, to change the way that you're doing business. Um, and, you know, many of the, the sort of agents and smugglers there, and I think, you know, the same is probably true with some of these diplomats, are are pretty expendable. You know, once they, um, if someone does get caught and, and arrested and convicted, they can very quickly be replaced. Um, so I think, but I do think that many countries, um, particularly countries that have um, taken a, a softer approach to North Korea, um, countries that do have long-standing relations with North Korea and and a degree of gratitude for the support that they received from North Korea, um, particularly in Africa in the liberation struggles, um, are reluctant to take action. And then beyond that, you also have your police officials who don't really want to cause a diplomatic incident. I mean, the 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 um, you know for for many of these these diplomats, it is almost an opportunity to to commit the perfect crime. But the, the key thing to remember is that the, the Vienna Convention, which bestows um, diplomatic privilege on diplomats, um, is not and was never intended as a get-out-of-jail-free card and is quite specific that diplomatic bags, which are can take any form. I mean, a diplomatic bag can be a suitcase or it can be a container that's, that's covered by diplomatic privilege. Um, but they may only contain diplomatic documents or articles that are, are intended for official um, use. And, mm. they, and it does allow for diplomats' bags to be searched, um, which would, they'd usually be exempt from in- inspection. But they can be searched if there are serious grounds for presuming that they don't contain official articles or that um, they're importing or exporting prohibited items or items that are controlled by quarantine regulations. Um, the only requirement then is that the diplomat or representative is present when that inspection is carried out. So there is an opportunity to 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 tackle this. Um, you know whether that would lead to prosecutions. Some countries have been have been particularly um, hard hitting. You know Germany has has arrested North Korean diplomats uh, or arrested a North Korean diplomat and, and put him and his wife on trial um, for smuggling across the border. But, you know, in that instance, they weren't accredited in that country. Um, they were accredited in the neighboring country. So, again, it just depends on, on you know, whether um, customs officials, etc., will risk the wrath of their superiors or their governments. Julian, have you been to North Korea? Uh, no. The closest I've been is to the, um, uh, to the border with, with North Korea. Um, but uh, I think it would be a, a fascinating trip. Please don't go. Just a request from me. I, I don't. I don't think it's. A, you have lots of good ideas, but that's that's not one of them. All right. Um, we're we're coming to the end. Um, I ask all my guests this. Um, if our listeners want to learn a little bit more about North Korea, a little bit more about North Korea and South Africa, are there any resources that you would recommend they go and find? Well, there there are a couple of, of great websites that document uh, news about North Korea and have looked at some of these specific issues. Um, one is nknews.org. 
there's also North Korea Economy Watch, which looks at uh, um, and and does some very insightful analysis around economic developments within North Korea. Um, there's a, a very good report which was published um, a couple of years ago by a U.S. Um, researcher, Sheena Chestnut Graytons, uh, called Illicit, which goes into a lot of detail about. Um, North Korean um, illicit activities, particularly around the the drugs trade, and there's also research by Benjamin R. Young, also a, a U.S.-based researcher who's been looking at North Korean ties uh, with Africa. And then finally, um, there's a um, professor Andrei Lankov who's based in uh, in South Korea, but who studied in North Korea and has written some some very insightful books about North Korea that strip away. Some of the myths, um, you know, that that have spread. Um, his most prominent one is uh, a book called "Real North Korea," um, and you know, I think North Korea, in many ways, has been demonized to such an extent that you know we tend to grab onto the the crazier stories, and um, you know, in some cases, um, some of the tales told by defectors, and that's why defector testimonies need to be t- um, need to be treated with caution and, and verification should be attempted. Um, you know, some of the wilder stories that have been told have proved to be, be false. Um, so I think it's very easy to create a sort of us and them thing where North Korea is entirely demonized and there's very little effort to try and understand what's going on and what the thinking processes are and to portray, you know, Kim Jong-un as this cartoon type character. Um, where you know, I think there's a lot more nuance at play. There's there's a there's a lot more going on. Um, so yeah, I'd recommend checking out all of those. Great. So I'll I'll put them the links to that in the show notes, listeners. Another book that I really enjoyed when you talk about humanizing the North Korean experience was Barbara Demick's Nothing to Envy. Mm, uh, that's an exceptional book. Gosh, almost ten years ten years ago, but um, just human stories on a personal level of, of life in North Korea. Um, the ups as well as the downs, and there are ups. Mm. So, yeah, that's a really beautiful no, it's book an, as well. It's an outstanding book, yeah. Julian Rademeyer from Bangkok. <laughs> we really appreciate you doing the podcast late at night. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much. No, absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on. You've been listening to The Commute, the podcast that brings you big ideas from a South African perspective. 